I'm Piper. And I'm Erin. Welcome to Off the Tracks podcast, where we explore what it means to do law differently. Today, we are joined by David Danielson. He is a lawyer and founding partner of DK Law. Prior to law school, David studied computer science at McGill University and worked as a computer scientist with the federal government. He uses his technological savvy to help his clients make informed decisions in a fast-paced, technology-driven world. Outside of the office, David is an executive member of the Canadian Bar Association's Constitutional and Human Rights Section and the Ontario Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. When he isn't working, David loves swimming, travel, and outdoor activities. His primary non-law passion is cooking, and he loves to bring happiness through food. So we are so grateful to have David here on the podcast. Hello, and uh, thank you both very much for having me. Oh, David, I think I am the most excited. So I feel very inclined to give everyone a bit of a backstory of how David got on the podcast in a way that's definitely unique to all of our other guests. Um, I shouldn't be worried, should I? (laughs) No, 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 no. No need to be worried. Um, But when I was 19, I had finished my second year in university and I moved to Ottawa for the summer um, for a summer job and I needed a place to live. And I found a four bedroom apartment on Kijiji. And I think I sent a family friend to go see it for me. I didn't really know anyone in Ottawa and I personally moved in sight unseen. And I got there and had two roommates that were girls who already lived there. I was subletting. And then a few days after I moved in, I think some other guy moved in as well, who I'd be sharing a bathroom with all summer. And this guy was none other than David. And at the time, David had also just moved to Ottawa for a job. And he, I think, had just gotten waitlisted for law school. And I remember talking a bit about that with him. I still like that was a thing in my mind far, far away. And um, yeah, David and I lived together. Uh, David was my first kind of like non-dorm room roommate. And um, here he is today on the pod. And we're so, I'm personally so excited. David is so funny and so smart. And I can't wait to hear a bit more about like how his career has evolved over time. So David, if you don't mind, can you tell everyone that doesn't know you how your career has evolved a bit over time? Yes, absolutely. And, and I'll just say, um, I appreciate you not mentioning the fact that when we were roommates, uh, I perhaps could have been a little bit better at keeping on top of the dishes than I was Um so that's very um, gracious of you not to bring that up. And I perhaps could have been a bit of a less uptight 19-year-old. So, you know, you win some, you lose some. Yeah, it's true. Um, but, uh, but, here, but here we are, and I'm <laughs> very grateful that you've uh, invited me onto your podcast. Um, so, sorry, I think I've forgotten the question you asked me. No, that's okay. David, just like let us know a bit about how you've gone from working for the federal government to starting your own firm and a little bit about what happened kind of in between. Yes. So um, I would say that laws, I'm going to give the the boring answer that lots of law students give, which is that law is something I've been also passionate about for a very long time. So I did know that I wanted to end up in law at some point, but when I was an undergrad, um, I originally was in uh, McGill's arts and science program, but um, the, the, the arts major I was doing was political science and, uh, I wasn't too keen on the other individuals in my program. Um, a lot of people were a bit full, full of themselves. 
Um, so I decided to just switch out to straight science. I uh, ended up doing computer science, which is my worst grade in first year, but uh, very interesting. And, uh, uh, you know, so probably not the best choice from a, a high grades point of view to get into law school, but it was a good degree. And uh, uh, I did eventually get there. Um, and then, you know, in terms of how I ended up doing my own practice, I sort of knew pretty early on going into law school, I wanted to, uh, wanted to try to chart my own path. Um, but I was fortunate that in my first year of law school um, at UOttawa, we have uh, small group courses uh, of about 20 people. And so one of the individuals in my small group course was this girl named Liz. Uh, and within about five seconds of her saying something, uh, I, I, I concluded, I'm like, this girl's hilarious. I just need to make her my friend. So Liz didn't know it at the time, but I basically made it my first year of law school mission to make her my friend. And then after that, get her on board with the idea of starting a firm, um, which we eventually did. We sort of talked about it as we went through law school. And uh, after that, we made it happen. And uh, I think both of us um, are very happy with the choice we made. That's awesome. So when did you guys actually make the leap and start the law firm? Was it right after articling or... It was, yeah. So we both articled in very different places. I articled for the federal government. Uh, Liz articled for a fantastic uh, family law lawyer in uh, in Ottawa. Uh, and we sort of threw out our articling. We just kind of planned it out together. And after we finished, uh, you know, we got called to the bar in June of 2019. We planned for a couple more months over the summer. And then in August of 2019, we, we launched our firm. That's so cool, David. And so now you and Liz have very different articling experiences. We did. And what types of services does your firm currently provide? So uh, we do a whole bunch of stuff, um, or rather I should say I do a whole bunch of stuff. Liz is smarter and sticks to one area of law and does it very well. Um, she does uh, family law and also some wills. Um, I do a whole bunch of different things, um, family law, general litigation, uh, uh, I do uh, actually quite a bit of landlord tenant, which has really picked up lately. Um, Cause one thing I didn't know uh, previously was that uh, you can actually, um, uh, or, or I should say legal aid issues uh, certificates for tenant side landlord tenant cases, which is great. So I've been doing a lot more tenant side landlord tenant and uh, I also do real estate and, and wills and uh, you know, keeps things interesting. Yeah. So you mentioned that you uh, do some landlord tenant board mm -hmm. work and, and do it for both sides. I also used to do some of that work at the oh, beginning, cool. but I found it so challenging. How have you found practicing landlord tenant board work during the pandemic? Because I mean, prior to the pandemic, the landlord tenant board was sort of a disaster of going in yeah. and waiting all day to figure out, you know, when you're going to be heard and just an overall mess. Um, and those problems seem to continue on Zoom and maybe even exacerbated, I would say. Um, but can you tell us a bit more about what practicing landlord tenant board law has been like during the pandemic? Yeah, it's uh, it's been challenging for sure. I mean, pretty much exactly as you described. So I'd say one of the biggest um, problems that's come up is there's a huge backlog of cases. I mean, that problem existed before the pandemic, but I think, you know, there was that period of time where things were kind of in limbo um, and that caused a really big backlog. So it's not at all uncommon for um, us to go on a all the hearings are pretty much happening by Zoom right now to go on a Zoom hearing call. And there are about uh, 60 different matters on the afternoon docket, uh, which is, you know, pretty crazy when you think about it. Uh, I mean, how can you get through that many uh, eviction hearings just in, you know, a three hour window? Um, so, you know, that's uh, pretty 
pretty interesting. And then, you know, from a, from a landlord point of view, if I'm representing a landlord, it's, um, it's frustrating if, you know, certain tenants aren't paying their rent and then you have to wait potentially a year to get a hearing booked. Um, and you know, that sort of prejudices the landlord, but then also on the, uh, the tenant side of things, you know, because there's a huge backlog, it could be difficult to have your your case uh, fully heard and have a, a longer hearing because the board just doesn't have the time or resources necessarily to dedicate to that. Um, and it can also be tough. Uh, you know, people have lost their jobs as a result of the pandemic, might be lower income. And so there's the struggle of uh, maintaining housing um, in that environment and the difficulty of finding new housing, because I'm sure you know that the rent is uh, sort of through the roof right now. Um, so it's it's definitely challenging from both perspectives. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree from my brief experience in doing the Zoom courts, it was quite a challenge. And um, yeah, the I, I do have some lingering files uh, from last year that, yeah, are still waiting for hearing dates. And it it's both very frustrating for clients who just keep messaging, asking if there's any updates. And unfortunately, yeah. there really is none. <laughs> it's no, exactly. Just, yeah. And, and in some cases, they're their lease is coming up, right? Yeah. So the matter, the issue that they needed help with a year ago is now just going to come and go um, exactly. without any resolution, which is extremely frustrating uh, to see. Yeah, so it is. How do you um, find your clients and has that changed over time? Uh, yeah, so I would say um, uh, right now, primarily our source of uh, new clients is word of mouth. Um you know, I'm lucky and Liz is lucky. We have a, a very uh, supportive and wonderful friend network. Um, and so, you know, we routinely get referrals from uh, uh, not just our close friends, but also um, other friends who maybe we haven't spoken with for a while, but they'll be like, oh, hey, you know, we know you started your own firm. Um, would you be interested in taking on these clients? And it's people that I never would have thought necessarily would refer us people, but they do. Uh, and so that's been really a wonderful source of, um, of referrals for us uh, and new clients for us. Um, when we first started out, um, Liz, uh, because she had her, her former articling principal, who was a family lawyer, she got, I would say, most of her clients from that individual. Um, and uh, I sort of um, used this thing called the Law Society Referral Service, which, you know, was... Um, sort of hit or miss in terms of the, the type of client you might get, um, but uh, but was useful. And then also um, kind of word of mouth, I, I would say I'm not, we, we do have a website, but I'm not even sure if anyone's um, found our firm through that and said, hey, you know, I, I looked at your website and I see you do this. So uh, I would say most of it is referrals. Yeah, I also used the Law Society referral service and it was super helpful in my first year of practice. And just helping get through, you know, learning how to do intakes because you uh, right. or client interviews because you would have that free 30 minute consultation. And so I think it was really beneficial for especially me as a new lawyer um, right out of articling to get that practical experience and also uh, feel like you're helping and contributing. Even if you can't take them on as a full client, you can maybe help guide uh, the client in the right direction. So yeah, exactly. I uh, definitely agree that the Law Society Referral Service um, is a great uh, resource, and I we will definitely link that in the um, episode notes for this episode in case anyone is ever looking for a lawyer or uh, looking to get started on their own. Because you know, usually the first question is, "How do you get your first question, your first client as a sole practitioner?" Um, and this is a great way to do that if you don't have that wide network starting right off the bat. Yep, for sure. So David, I think it's really cool to work with a friend. Aaron and I became friends because we worked together at our school's um, pro bono uh, law students organization. Yep. Um, and so 
you, you know, you made it your mission to become friends with Liz. You succeeded. And now you have a firm with Liz. And so I guess my question is, both of you were really new lawyers when you started the firm together. And how do you guys seek mentorship? And how do you guys bounce ideas off each other and collaborate, especially because you both practice in very different areas of law? Yeah, so um, I would say that when we first started out, um, Liz, she she had her articling principle to bounce ideas off of. Um, you know, I, uh, well, Liz and I, we, we actually shared space with a more senior lawyer uh, when we first started out. And so, you know, he practiced both criminal law and family law. And so we could, we could bounce ideas off of him and ask questions. Um, you know, we also have a bunch of other lawyers that we, we keep in contact with. And even sometimes, um, you know, lawyers that I've worked opposite uh, from in on a certain litigation file, for example, you know, after that file is over, I'll I'll just use that person as a a, a potential source of uh, information or or mentorship and call them up and be like, hey, you know, we, we worked on this previous file together. I'm curious, you know, how do you go about approaching something like this? And and you know, I find that uh, lawyers, um, if you if you approach them uh, in that way, they're very open to uh, helping out. So uh, you know, I find that's very helpful. And you know, just having uh, Liz, uh, honestly, you know, she's a brilliant uh, brilliant person, um, you know, having that person to bounce ideas off of and uh, talk through things with, you know, very often we can figure things out just between ourselves. And uh, uh, I, I think I think our clients are happy with us for the most part. So it seems to work. Yeah, that's awesome. So was that a consideration at all going out on your own? Or was it always the plan to go out with a partner? Just wondering if you can speak to, I guess, the benefits of starting off uh, uh, practice with a partner versus um, what it would be like if you had just gone out on your own? Yeah, I don't know that I would be too keen on the idea of doing it just on my own. I think that the legal profession at the best of times can be a little bit isolating. Um, and, uh, you know, the pandemic has certainly made that worse. I think that having that other person, if only just to have someone to talk to who goes through the same things you go through on a day-to-day basis and sees the files you work on, which you might not necessarily have if you're, if you're using an outside source of mentorship, you know, having that person there with you to be able to talk to is, uh, honestly invaluable. And, um, I, I try to look back and imagine if, uh, how things would have gone if I hadn't had Liz, uh, and it's, uh, it's very hard to, I don't know if I would enjoy it nearly as much as I do. No, that, that makes a ton of sense, David. And I think when you talk about going solo, you and Liz, right out of articling, it wasn't really your first journey into, um, you know, really being a strong advocate um, as, as a lawyer, as a law student. And I know that you have a really unique and funny story about getting a speeding ticket. And I, I'm just dying for you to share it with anyone listening. So can you, can you share your story about getting a speeding ticket in Quebec? Yes, I absolutely can. Um, for any any judges who might be listening to this podcast, you're going to probably roll your eyes and be like, oh my God, he's one of those law students who did that. But um, yes, I, I will absolutely tell the story. Um, I, I do enjoy telling it. So um, uh, when I was, uh, when I was a, a law student, um, uh, I was uh, one day driving to Montreal to go visit my brother who, who lives there. Um, and uh, they had these automated speeding cameras set up. Uh, and one of these speeding cameras um, uh, caught me allegedly uh, speeding. And so I um, I got this ticket in the mail and I said, well, gosh darn it, I'm going to fight this ticket tooth and nail. So what I did was I pleaded not guilty to the ticket. 
And the trial was supposed to happen in this uh, the city called uh, Salaberry de Valleyfield, which is um, shortened to Valleyfield. It's this, um, this town off uh, the island of Montreal. So the trial was supposed to happen there. It's about a two-hour drive from Ottawa. And I said to myself, well, let's see if maybe it's possible to have this trial moved from Valleyfield to Gatineau, which is obviously right across the river from Ottawa, so much closer, uh, more convenient to go to trial. Now, there are two provisions in Quebec's uh, Code of Penal Procedure, which is the, the law kind of governing procedural law in uh, Quebec's penal system. Um, there are two articles in that Code of Penal Procedure that allow you to request a transfer of a file from one jurisdiction to another. Um, and there's Article 176 and Article 177. Now, Article 176 says you have to go to the courthouse where the trial was originally supposed to happen and request that it be moved. Article 177 allows you to go to the courthouse that you want to get it moved to, i.e. your closer courthouse, and say, please move it to here. Now, the problem with Article 177, the closest courthouse uh, provision, is that uh, you, the courts have interpreted that provision narrowly in Quebec, saying that only Quebec residents are allowed to use that provision. Uh, and so being the cheeky and enterprising young law student that I was, I said, well, you know what, just for the heck of it, I'm going to see if I can convince the judge to use Article 177 uh, uh, to move it from Valleyfield to Gatineau. And so I went to the Gatineau courthouse, uh, tried making that argument, which was, uh, was soundly uh, rejected by um, uh, that court. Um, and so I said to myself, well, you know what, I'm not going to give up. I'm uh, going to see if I can uh, work this up the, uh, the legal chain. And uh, because there was no right of appeal, I uh, requested judicial review in the uh, Quebec Superior Court um, and decided that I would also bring in some constitutional arguments as well. Uh, so now we, we increased the number of Quebec government lawyers from one to two, and there were two lawyers now uh, opposing my application. Um, which uh, I'm not sure how, I, how much I ended up costing the government in the end for that, but uh, we'll not talk about that impact. Um, so I, uh, I made my, uh, my uh, request for judicial review in Quebec Superior Court. Um, the court uh, ended up reserving its decision, but ultimately uh, rejecting my arguments. Um, but uh, uh, what I ended up doing uh, after that was uh, I said, um, okay, you know what, I'm actually, uh, I'm going to try seeing if I can take this even further up. Uh, I'm going to request leave to appeal at Quebec's Court of Appeal um, and see if maybe the Court of Appeal will give me a different answer. Um, now, before I managed to get to the Court of Appeal, the prosecution actually ended up proceeding with the, the, the speeding ticket trial, um, even though they didn't tell me they were going to proceed. And even though the court had ordered, you're not going to proceed with this until we, you know, resolve this question. Um, but they did it anyway. Uh, so I obviously wasn't there at that trial, but for whatever reason, uh, the, the person hearing the trial uh, dismissed the case that the prosecution brought against me. Um, I guess they were convinced that there was a reasonable doubt as to my guilt. And um, which of course, you know, makes perfect sense because I've you know, not guilty of that uh, particular offense. Um, but uh, they they decided um, to do that. And so by the time I got to the Court of Appeal, uh, the question was legally moot. And so I tried to convince the uh, uh, Justice uh, Og of the Court of Appeal that uh, the appeal uh, was not, in fact, moot, and it was still a question worth hearing. But uh, uh, she politely disagreed with me, uh, dismissed my motion for leave to appeal. And then I said, well, you know what, just for the heck of it, I'm going to try uh, requesting leave at the Supreme Court of Canada, which I did. And I'm sure you can guess how that went. Uh, also dismissed. Um, all these failures are, by the way, um, uh, uncanny for anyone who wants to uh, to read them. Um, but uh, 
that's uh, sort of how that went. And uh, one of my professors at law school, Professor Kirkup, uh, actually gave me directed research credit for all of the uh, work that I put into this. So um, uh, all's well that ends well. That is hilarious. I... Oh my God, David. I David and I caught up like a year and a half ago on Zoom and he told me the story. And when we invited him on the podcast, I thought, I'm not making it through the episode without asking him about it. It's so funny. Thank you so much for sharing, David. My pleasure. Yeah. Piper told me that he had a funny story about a speeding ticket and it did not disappoint. So thank you so much for sharing that story with us. Uh, Maybe one day when I'm bored, I'll go and look up these cases on Canly. (laughs) (laughs) So we would love to hear what is one of your favorite memories or proudest moments of your career other than, you know, fighting tooth and nail to fight this um, jurisdictional issue and speeding ticket? Uh, yes, of course. So um, I'm fortunate that I uh, am teaching right now at Algonquin College in Ottawa. I'm teaching part-time in the uh, paralegal program. Um, and um, what I, I also taught in the fall of 2021. Um, and uh, the course that I'm currently teaching and that I taught in the fall was the uh, foundational courts and torts, uh, course in uh, torts and contracts. Um, and, um, you know, I, I had a really, uh, wonderful group of individuals that I was teaching and, uh, I also do this semester as well. Um, but at the end of every semester, similar to probably what you guys had in law school is, uh, you know, students have a chance to rate their prof and give feedback on how they think the prof did. Uh, and, uh, I got my results back, uh, for the fall term very recently. And, uh, I had a very, um, very high score for my students and a lot of very positive feedback. Um, and apparently I was, according to a, a decent number of individuals, I was good at explaining, uh, good at explaining things in a way that was understandable. And I was also good at, um, uh, bringing a practical approach to teaching and sort of, uh, explaining how things would pre- uh, you know, play out in reality and not just in theory. So I guess they appreciated that. And that, uh, you know, obviously made me feel, um, really good about myself. And, uh, so that's, I would say one of the proudest moments in my career so far. That is really cool. And I love that you've been able to take on this teaching role and do some more unique work in addition to running your own practice. Do you think that going solo has enabled you to take on unique opportunities like this teaching? So, you know, interestingly enough, um, I I think that perhaps, um, you know, starting, uh, starting a firm has um, maybe made it less likely that I'd be able to do stuff like teaching just because, uh, you know, and I'm sure you guys know this in addition to the, uh, uh, law side of things, I also have to worry about the business side too. So that takes up a considerable amount of time, but it just so happens that I do enjoy, uh, teaching very much. And, uh, you know, before I, um, was a lawyer or a law student, I also did uh, some tutoring and, and whatnot, and I really enjoyed that. So figured out ah, what the heck, you know, let's see if I can, uh, carry on with that. Um, but I, I do it in spite of the fact that I don't have very much time, uh, not because of it. No. So David, you mentioned the business side of things of running your own firm and how do you separate yourself from your business and how do you create those boundaries so that you can take on these unique opportunities and still do the things you're passionate outside of work? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, um, I'm sure that I'm not the first person who's ever uh, said this before, um, but I find that, uh, you know, setting very clear boundaries with clients and setting expectations with clients right at the very beginning and also throughout your retainer with them is very important. Uh, and, you know, what I mean by that is um, in our uh, standard retainer that we sign with our clients, uh, we will um, almost always put a clause in there. In fact, I think we've always put a clause in there saying, you know, 
here's how often you can expect to hear from us sort of if you send us an email or give us a phone call you know you can expect that we will get back to you within 48 hours uh you know the the of course exception to that and we tell clients this is if we're in trial or if we're uh you know in a hearing or something we might have to dedicate our full time and energy to that so we can't get back to you right away uh, but it's not that we're ignoring you it's that we're you know taking care of something that's pressing and so we make that very clear uh and another thing we also make very clear is you know we respond to uh emails uh, and phone calls during business hours, which is typically, you know, we'd say nine to five. Um, and so in, on evenings or on weekends, um, you know, unless you send us something that we consider urgent, uh, we're not going to be responding to you. So it's very, you know, we make it clear that uh, um, we will be responding during, uh, you know, during the day on on weekdays and you know we we as we explain to clients it's not because we don't want to hear from you and we don't care about your case it's just we need to make sure that you know we take our care of our own mental sanity too and uh we can only do our best work for you if we're recharged and you know ready to go yeah wow well piper just typed to me you need to put this clause in your retainer if you don't have it already lol and i completely agree piper i do think i need to steal this idea and put this into my retainer because it is so tough uh, to not feel like you're on 24-7 when it is yeah. your business, um, like you said. But having those boundaries in place and those setting those expectations up front, I think, uh, goes a long way in managing client expectations and, and building that relationship going forward. Because like you said, you really can't um, serve your clients properly if you're not properly recharged yourself. Exactly. And uh, yeah, it's definitely something I'm working on. <laughs> yeah, it takes it takes practice and we've gotten better at it too. But uh, yeah, you'll, you know, you'll get there. <laughs> yeah. So um, speaking of sending some wisdom from a more seasoned solo practitioner to us younger ones, um, how and younger in like time of practice, not, you know, age, yeah. whatever. <laughs> but um, <laughs> what is something you wish you knew before going solo? Something I wish I knew. Um, so I'm not sure necessarily that this is something I wish I knew before going solo, but certainly something I wish I knew when I was starting off, um, which maybe I, I would have known, you know, had I not uh, started off on my own, uh, was uh, just how fact driven uh, the law is. Uh, rather than sort of purely legally driven. So, you know, if we go back to my Supreme uh, Court uh, journey, uh, where my motion for leave to appeal was denied for the speeding ticket, um, you know, I sort of made very legalistic, more technical arguments uh, throughout my process there, uh, when, you know, the majority of the judges that I've encountered uh, in my real practice um, you know, very much care about the facts and not so much about the law. So, you know, you can very often tell, uh, this is something I didn't necessarily realize at the beginning of my career, but now I've come to appreciate, you can very often tell how a case is going to go um, just by, uh, you know, the facts that your client is is telling you and, you know, maybe how their demeanor is, uh, stuff like that, stuff, you know, you wouldn't necessarily expect in law school when you're reading cases and, you know, assume that it's uh, just sort of uh, law that drives what's going to happen, but, you know, what the common law says rather than just the person who comes in, in front of you. Uh, and so that's sort of been an eye-opener. I think it's helped me be a better lawyer is to appreciate that a lot of decisions are made based on the individual facts that are before you rather than um, some technical legal argument. Unless you're at the landlord and tenant board, then then getting stuff thrown out on technicalities is all the rage. <laughs> oh my gosh, David. So that's amazing. And if there was one thing, 
I mean, small question. If there was just one thing you could change about the legal profession, what might it be? Yeah, so for me, it would definitely be, I, I find that the legal profession is a very conservative profession. And again, I'm sure I'm not the first person who's made that comment. I think things are slow to change and slow changing, uh, you know, isn't necessarily a bad thing in all circumstances. I think part of the reason our courts have the legitimacy they do is because they're more cautious in the approach they take and don't, uh, you know, um, step out into the fray uh, more than they have to. Uh, but at the same time, I think certain aspects of our profession would benefit uh, from, you know, faster movement. I mean, if you take, for example, the fact that email filing only became a thing because of the COVID pandemic, when we've had email for how many years now, uh, you know, I think stuff like that, we're just maintaining the status quo just because it sort of ain't broke, even though a lot of the time it is, uh, and, you know, maintaining that status quo just for the sake of it. And because we're used to doing things a certain way, I think is uh, very much detrimental to uh, our justice system. Uh, so I do wish that, uh, you know, um, uh, the, the profession as a whole would be a bit more forward-thinking and not as uh, not as conservative or resistant to change as as it seems to be. Yeah, I definitely agree. There have been some definite important uh, changes and shifts in the way the legal profession is operating now, and it's really great to see. It's unfortunate that it took a global pandemic to push us yeah. there, but um, yeah, definitely some of the things make much more sense uh, now that we have e-filing and a lot of my articling was like driving to different courthouses, yeah, I believe <laughs> filing it. Yeah. documents, like absurd, actually absurd to think about now. So absurd. The, and I, I still get faxes from some lawyers. I'm like, why, why are you sending me a fax? I know. I know. It's still baffling. Um, and, and some of the institutions I work with still like um, government institutions are still paper-based. Like yeah, it, it's are. so infuriating. And I'm like, can you email this to me? They're like, no, I have to send it by snail mail to you, to your office that you don't even go to because it's a co-work space. So I have yep. to like go check it and make sure that no letters have come in because they can't send an email. It's truly astonishing. And it's but, interesting you mentioned that because I think, you know, when you sometimes get that answer that, oh, I have to do this or I have to do that. I, I think there's a, you know, perhaps more people than there should be who will say, you know, if you actually press them on, well, why, why does it have to be this way? They don't necessarily have a good answer to that question. So I think if more people started asking, why do we do things a certain way? And again, I'm not the first person to say this, um, but I think if we had more people questioning the reason behind why we do certain things rather than just blanket saying, oh, we have to do it this way without getting behind that assumption, I think that that also is a problem. That is so true. Thank you so much for sharing. We always love to end our episode with the same question, which is what is something new you've learned recently? Okay. So something I've, I've new I've, I've learned recently, um, this is going to, this is going to, well, probably make you laugh or maybe feel sorry for me, but I recently discovered uh, how nice it is to just watch TV and veg for a whole day. That's not something I ever used to do, but uh, I think during this pandemic, one day I just decided, I think it was actually this TV series called The Expanse. I don't know if you've ever watched it or not, but uh, it's it's a fantastic TV series. It was actually so good that, I don't know if uh, you knew this or not, but um, it was originally on a, a Canadian sci-fi channel and then it got canceled after three seasons. Uh, but then apparently Jeff Bezos, like Amazon Jeff Bezos, watched it and liked it so much that he literally paid out of his own personal fortune to resurrect it. So um, that should tell you how good it is. But anyways, I one day I think was just sort of, I started watching it and I'm like, holy shit, this is good. So I'm just sitting there watching The Expanse and like before I know it, the sun's already gone down. Not that it takes that long for the sun to set in the winter, but I was uh, I was sort of just watching that the whole day, just sitting on the couch and just like 
flopping back and like, wow, this is glorious. Um, so that's something that I've, I've recently learned is I can now understand why uh, watching TV is all the rage because uh, it sometimes just allows you to be mindless and uh, decompress, if you will. I love that. I think that's such a good reminder and something I've actually talked about more often than I would like to admit in therapy about how I wish I just plopped on the couch and just watched TV mindlessly more often. David, it has been such a treat to have you on the podcast, especially learning a bit more about how your career and your legal career specifically have evolved. Because when we lived together, I don't know if you remember, but you were subject to like random polygraph tests. And so I remember David would come home from work. I'd come home from work and I'd say like, oh, how was your day? And David would have to say like, I went to work or like I had a presentation today and he couldn't really talk about it. So it's been so nice to learn a bit more about your career, especially now that you can talk about it. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my, my pleasure. And thank you both very much too. This has been a wonderful experience for me too. No, absolutely. And so to learn more about David and Liz's awesome law firm in Ottawa, you can visit their website linked in the episode notes. And to stay up to date with the podcast, you can follow us on Instagram at Off The Tracks Podcast and stay tuned for our next episode coming out next Tuesday. Bye.